Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we are going to talk about business models. So let's start off with kind of defining uh, what a business model is in this context of authority. And I think for me, it's it's kind of, I, I see with software developers who, you know, the audience that I generally work with, I see them a lot of times not make this decision. They don't really decide what they're in the business of doing. They just have a skill set and they apply it in, in three very different ways. So you'll see lots of software developers kind of pitch themselves as, you know, the, you go to their website and they say, we offer consulting, we do development, we do training. And I'm like, yeah, you can make money at all those things, but those are three really different businesses to be in. And unless you have a big firm that has, you know, maybe a department for each one of those different things, it's really hard to, to do a great job at any one of them. Even though you might be qualified to do all of them, the, the, all the marketing activities you're going to do around your business and maybe, you know, Rochelle branding things are going, it's just going to be hard. It, it, it puts forth this really blurry, confused kind of message, uh, in my experience and focusing down on one of them, even if perhaps you still do some of the other ones, uh, you know, for, as an exception here and there uh, at first, you know, to keep the lights on or whatever. But it, once you focus down on just doing training or just doing consulting or just doing development, uh, I find things get a lot easier for people. Has that been your experience? Yeah. Cause when I heard you say that to me, those are three different business models. Absolutely. And and it depends on whether you want to be a soloist or ultimately you want to hire people, but it just seems like they're different skill sets used in different ways. And if you want to build out a business, you'd make different decisions if you wanted to do development versus consulting. Right. I mean, hiring for a huge one right there. Yeah. Do I hire or don't? Yeah. You know, if you're going to be a consultant and just when I say consultant, I mean, very specifically like an advisory consultant, someone who gives advice, then you know, you re obviously there are tons of consultancies that have lots of bodies. I'm not a huge fan of that model. I, I'm a, a much bigger fan of the solo or very small consultancies. And if that's what you're going to do, you don't have to go out and hire a bunch of pairs of hands, as I call them, you know, because it's you're doing a different kind of work and it changes your marketing. It changes your pipeline. It changes everything about your business if you're just doing pure advisory consulting. You kind of have to decide what you want to be when you grow up, if you will. Exactly. That's exactly what I say. Right? And yeah. and so many people, and you know, I've had this happen as well early in my career, is we sort of fall into a business model and then you know, you learn. I mean, I'm thinking back when I had my first company, we started as a consulting firm and we kept getting these requests from big corporates to lend them bodies. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, gee, we have more people coming to us than we can use for consulting. Why don't we try this? And we were maybe a couple years in. So we did it. And talk about a learning experience. What I all of a sudden realize is, oh, duh, the uh, financials are very different on loaning out a body where you mark it up by the person up by 35 percent than consulting where you mark it up by 300 percent. The I mean, everything was different, but it still required the same amount of work. So we, we, we lasted the length of the contracts that we signed in that business. And within six months, you know, I never looked back. We never did that again. We stuck to our consulting model. Right. And this is a, this is a huge thing to get uh, your head around if 
you're considering being a body shop or, or, you know, using that as piece of your revenue stream, using that as a piece of your revenue stream, the profit on staff augmentation, which is basically what that is, is pretty low. Mm-hmm. The revenue, so the tricky, the, the seductive thing about it is, is that the revenue can be pretty solid, but the profit's really low. So it's, it's a, it's a, a, I would razor thin is perhaps overstating it, but you're, you end up operating on razor thin margins, which means that you have to be super careful about, you know, you just really have to be super careful about the business controls that are around that. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about being an authority here and how you can turn that into making a living for yourself. And I think doing implementation work of any kind, any kind of creative execution, any of that stuff is a backwards approach. If you're, if you're an expert or an authority and you've got this big idea, really, I think moving in a, a much more advisory direction probably makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a certainly from a profit standpoint. Well, and not to, uh, just not to underscore this, but there's also a cash flow difference when you're you've got other people, you have to pay them. So when you have razor thin margins and our margins were thin back then, now that business is even tighter. I mean, they really if there's tighter than razor thin, that's where they are now. So it's 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 cash flow, it's that and it doesn't allow you to demonstrate authority. I don't think that's a model for the, you know, the people who are listening to this, you know, I'm thinking what they want to do is they want to build on this big idea and their thought leadership. Exactly. Yeah. What the, what I see people doing when they're sort of so cause you don't become an expert or an authority overnight, you slowly get there. Well, I suppose there's some exceptions to that, but in general, in my world, over time, you build a mastery over some area of expertise or some skill set or something like that. And you will often give away the strategic pieces of that engagement in order to get this kind of long-term implementation work. So somebody says, oh, we need, we need you to do this. We need you to build us this amazing website. And they say, okay, um, uh, you know, the, the, the implementer. So my student would say, okay, let's do that. Uh, first, we need to sit down and figure out exactly what we want to do, what you're trying to accomplish and all that. And then we'll charge you by the hour to build the thing for you. But they give away the strategy piece, all the smarts they give away for free in order to close the deal, the, what they see as the bigger deal. And for me, that's 100% reverse of what you should be doing, or, or certainly if you want to grow a more profitable business and you want to capitalize on your real strength, which is, you know, your expertise, your authority, your superpower, uh, then that low margin stuff is a distraction and stressful. And uh, the high margin stuff is the place to be. But the tricky part is when you're new to selling that kind of outcome or that sort of a product or service or however it's delivered, the cash flow can be tricky there too because the profit's super high, but the revenue might not be. That's that's the crux of it. And you know, there's a lot of companies that do one or the other. Um, and when I say companies, I mean you know, soloists as well. It's there are people who do just the strategy and just the implement, implementation. And here's the problem: with it's really hard to do both because when you're a strategist, you look and you say, "Oh, well, you know, let's say your piece of it is fifty thousand dollars to do the strategy, and it's all profit basically, but the implementation is a million. It's easy to look at that million dollars and start to salivate a little bit." Um, right. And you go, Oh, gee, if I could just have a piece of that. Um, the flip side is the people who are doing that implementation, 
a lot of times shouldn't be doing the strategy because they're focused on the implementation. They're seeing it through a different filter. And it's you have to be able, and from a strategy standpoint, you have to be able to say something to, to give advice that maybe doesn't go to the million dollar implementation. Maybe that's not the right advice. Maybe the right advice is um, fix some things internally on your own, work towards this for a year, and then let's revisit. I mean, that could be an outcome. If you're in the implementation business, you're going to have a real hard time giving that advice. Sure, because you're going to have payroll for that year while you're waiting for the client to get back to you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not saying they wouldn't do it. I just think the metrics make it really hard to do the right thing. Yeah, if you if you you know, the implementation people are the hammer. So if you're doing, if you're trying to straddle the fence and do both, then you're going to say, oh, well, what you got here is a nail. Oh, guess what? I have a hammer. Exactly. So it's it's really hard to, even if you're capable of doing it, it, in my opinion, creates a, a trust fracture with the client because if you're saying, hey, you know what you should do strategically is hire me to do all this implementation work for you. It's, it's a little bit hard to swallow. So I ruled that out of my business. I started off doing development and worked my way up through there. And I found that I enjoyed the strategy work more over time. Eventually, I got sick of coding. So I was, you know, it's fun to do, but not for money. So I, eventually, I just drew a line in the sand. And I said, after January 1st, I'm not taking on any new coding clients. That's it. I'm not doing any more coding for money. Mm -hmm. And... I had enough of a runway that I could get, you know, I only had to get one or two clients a year for pure strategy stuff or pure advisory consulting. And that covered me. Yeah. What, what's, I'm curious if, if the path that I'm describing here is, is similar to people you've worked with, or if there's a different path that, that you've seen work where someone, I don't know, maybe has a, a hit book you know, and they're, they're a doctor or something. And then they, they write a book and it's a bestseller and all of a sudden they're on TV, you know, it, mm -hmm. and it just goes straight to speaking gigs and uh, that sort of thing. The rock star model, right? Yeah, exactly. The overnight success type. Yeah. Thing. Well, you know, it may just be a, a function of, of who I've worked with. I don't know that I've seen any overnight successes. Um, I've got uh, one client who's written five books who on paper would look like an overnight success, but in fact, you know, he'd been writing for 15 years. Um, and then one of his first book, which he wrote with a, a co-author, sold 3 million copies, which was a pretty big deal. Um, and it, it surprised everybody, including their publisher. Um, but, he, you know, he, like you said, you know, nobody becomes an expert overnight. So he really worked on that craft and, and became... You know, he was one of the guys that one of Oprah's go-to people for her shows and some things like that. So we've seen that. But I think a more traditional path is that I, I just want to say this. Nobody comes out of the womb knowing what their business model is, right? <laughs> Everybody I know, clients and non-clients alike, you know, we've just experimented with things that haven't worked be until we find that that right model. So. Um, I guess the commonality that I've seen is that people struggle in the beginning because a lot of times when people leave either, you know, a consulting firm or corporate life, they start out as a freelancer. You know, I'm, I'm a body for hire and, um, you know, they're looking to be busy. 
And so that first year, I argue the first year is actually the easiest year because everybody wants to help you. They want to do you a favor, right? Right. And it's, oh, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? The second year is the bugger. You know, that's, the sophomore slump. Yeah, that's a little tougher. And that's kind of when you start to say, oh, so does this model make sense? And if it does, is how I'm selling it, does that make sense for me? So what do I need to tweak in year two to really make this work? Oh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen the same thing. So somebody works at a company, they gain the skill set, they feel like they're a rock star, they go, yeah, I'm not I'm going to go do this on my own mm-hmm. and make all that money. And they, they've got this story that they tell their, their friends and family and, you know, their personal network. And just like you said, they magically get business. But then after a year or so, they have exhausted their personal network and or professional network. And now they're like, it's almost like starting from scratch. And the people who I see who don't have a hard time in that second year have essentially usually what happens is they've got a whale client who just keeps them on for as long as they want to stay on, which is basically a job. And it's not doing them a favor to have that whale because then you're not looking for something else. Right. You're not growing at all. You just like, you jumped, you jumped and you grabbed onto a really good life raft. And now you're just floating on this life raft forever unless you do something about it. It's almost worse. So uh, when, when, when people are at that stage, you know, a lot of them aren't really experts at what they do yet either. You know, they're okay at some skill or they're good at a craft, but they're not, they don't have a point of view yet. Mm-hmm. They don't have, you know, I think we were, I think it was before we started recording, you made a great comment about, you know, if you, if you're a freelancer and that's, and I think it's a natural transition phase to go through, but it is a transition phase. And if you're just going to keep freelancing for the rest of your life, you probably should just get a job. You know, lots of caveats, of course. But in general, if you're not looking at it as a transition phase to something bigger, it's probably too risky for a normal human to deal with long term. Uh, The profit margins are very low. Even if your hourly rate is astronomical, it's still low, you know, because something about the human brain will only accept a certain amount per hour to pay another person and, and right. it caps out unless you're extremely rare, extremely rare. It caps out around two, 250 bucks an hour. So I think it's a transition phase. And while you're going through that phase, you should be developing a point of view and starting to, if you find your, when you find yourself pushing back on clients, then you're starting to act more like a consultant Well, they say, we want you to do this. And you say, why do you want me to do that? I, I understand that you want that. I, I I can tell you that I can do it, but I don't understand why you would want that done because the business goals from where I'm sitting, you know, this is going to result in these things. And you've told me before that those things aren't valuable to you. So why, when you start asking why, mm-hmm. dear client, would you want me to go build that thing for you the way you just told me to do it? And when they say, oh, good question. I'm glad you asked. Well, we think it's going to, it's going to go like this. And you say, well, I can, I actually can get you to that in a much more uh, cheap or easy or reliable way. How about we do it like this? How about we do it my way? Mm-hmm. And that, that's when I, when I start to see that from a freelancer, I feel like they're starting to come out of that phase of just being a freelancer and starting to be more of an advisor. And 
and then it gets tricky because if you're advising them to pay you more money, then, <laughs> you know, it's like voting on your own salary. But wow, Jonathan, I mean, what you just said, that sounded so much like an employee to me. I, I just like, I, I can't even wrap my head around that where, where the client says, you know, do it this way, not do this, but do it this way. It's yeah, I, that's to me, that's not consulting. And it's, it's not that the client is wrong. It's that you have ultimately a, a point of view, even if it's not fully developed yet, you have a view about what makes sense for the work that you're doing, you know, kind of what you'll do and what you won't do. And um, yeah, I think, I mean, that's, that's where that's got to be the line in the sand you start drawing when you say, wait a minute, no, this is my business. And I want this client to be successful. You know, this is my client, I want them to do well. So, you know, that's not the answer. Let's talk about what, you know, what the right approach is. Yeah, the the analogy I always use is like, you know, you don't walk into a doctor's office and say, hey, doc, I need a triple bypass. Right. And the doctor's like, okay, jump up on the table. <laughs> Let's go. It'd be $250 an hour. Tell me when to stop. Yeah, right. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. With things like this, I think that it's smart to start to imagine yourself moving into a behavior pattern that you would expect from a doctor because that's a professional. It's a classic professional. And that's, for me, I feel like that's what anyone who's freelancing should, that should be a temporary state of affairs and they should either be transitioning into a better full-time job, a more reliable, stable full-time job, which I mean, it almost, I almost laughed saying that that sounds crazy, but anyway, you should be transitioning in that direction or into the world of being a real and actual professional who, who, you know, believes that things should be done a particular way, has a professional standard and won't just do what they're told, especially if they believe that it's not in their client's best interest. But how do you charge for that? Well, that's what I was going to say. That whole that whole process is an evolution of pricing too, you know, because uh, yes. an extra pair of hands will always make less money than the expert. Always, always, always. There's a great quote about this. Um, he who knows how will always work for he who knows why. That's I like that. I mean, if you look at the the structure of any big company, the people who are making why decisions are the ones that get paid the most, not the people who do, not the people who dig the ditches. It's you you, you got to know where to dig the ditch, why to dig the ditch, when to dig the ditch, how to dig the ditch is probably more or less interchangeable, aka commodity, undifferentiated labor. Yeah, and and I think what we're trying to say, you know, just generally with with the business of authority is that it's okay if you want to dig the ditch. But if you want to be the authority, you have to do more. And, you know, and, and of course, you know, you and I both live and breathe this stuff. So we think that's the way to go. Yeah, it's a grain of salt. Exactly. <laughs> so when I talk to people, you know, when, when I first talk to people about this, they have a hard time wrapping their heads around really anything other than billing by the hour for labor that they execute, you know, that they engage in on the client's behalf. And, and so the first thing I need to do is, is kind of break that notion of the idea that hourly billing is the only way to charge for your consulting, mm -hmm. if that's actually what you're doing. And, and I've gotten pretty good at doing that because I can, I used to bill by the hour. I know all of the hilarious things that happen and how hand wavy and, and create, it's nuts. The whole thing is nuts. And it's really easy for me to have a conversation with anyone else who bills by the hour and make them laugh their head off by calling out like, oh, remember that time that you did this? Oh, oh, you, you, uh, you bill for every hour. What about this? You never write down time. Oh, really? What about this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you're right. 
So, so the first thing you have to do, dear listener, is uh, imagine that there's another way to price things besides hourly and arrears, and and there is, and then think, okay, if I'm not, if I don't have to, if I can disconnect the time from money. So if I can, if I can sort of break that chain of trading time for money and the game isn't, how do I charge more per hour? How do I convince people to pay me more per hour? It's totally, that's just, that's just, that's not the game. Like, forget about that. Then what I have people do is create over time, what I call a product ladder. And there are lots of different words, you know, that's just this sort of visual that made sense to me. There are lots of other names for it. Uh, but I look at it as like a life cycle of a lead turning into a prospect, you know, like a, a qualified prospect turning into a sales call, turning into a client, turning into a happy client that you've delivered on, turning into a referral. Like the whole the whole life cycle of the client experience from inception to completion and perhaps repeat for me is a trust building exercise. So however much trust they have in me for whatever reason, you know, maybe they read my book and they think I'm a genius, or maybe they've never heard of me. Uh, maybe they heard me on a podcast. Maybe they saw me on stage, make a presentation. They're going to have some level of trust between zero and infinity and right. And, and the amount of money that they're going to be willing to uh, even consider hiring me for is going to be based very much on, on the level of trust they have that I can deliver the business outcomes that they're looking for. Yes. So what I'll, what I say to people is, uh, focus on either focus on something. It's either a problem that you solve or a kind of business that you help or a particular skill set that you have and, and come up with maybe two or three, four, five, six, you know, but starting out, you usually just have one and then add another one, then maybe add another one. So uh, three is a good number to start with where you essentially solve that problem or you help this kind of client or you exercise your skill in a particular way that you can do at three different cost levels to you and therefore three different price levels to the client. So you could perhaps have a, a DIY version of your expertise that they download or they view or they read, and then they go out and try and do things themselves. Then you can have this middle level where you kind of advise them about how to do it uh, in, a, in a personal way. It's not like a not like a static info product type of thing, but you maybe have a, a road mapping session with them or a workshop with them, and then you you know you do some discovery and you present them with some findings and recommendations, and then they run with it. And then there's a higher level thing which would maybe be. Um, ongoing oversight while people were doing the project in, you know, to make sure that the recommendations that you gave were adhered to or executed in the most quick and economically feasible way. But you're really, you're taking your, the same expertise and you're packaging it up in, in this case in three different ways and offering it at three different prices on your site. And, and as clients gain more trust with you, However, the, however that happens, they can engage with you at one of these different levels. And I call it a product ladder because they, you know, in general, they're going to start at the bottom and be like, man, we paid this guy, whatever, $5,000 for, um, whatever it is, uh, an online course. And it was just the best money we ever spent. It was amazing. Uh, we wanted to do a roadmap for us and that's going to be 25,000, but okay, fine. I'm sure we'll get our money back. Uh, whether well, anyway, so that's, that's the, that's the general concept that, that I've seen that's worked for me. I've seen it work for lots of different 
software professionals, usually people who've got five or 10 years of experience working on their own. But I know you work with much different kinds of clients. I'm curious if you've seen other kinds of other kinds of models work or what are some of the obvious ones? Like I didn't touch on speaking gigs, for example. Right. Well, I mean, there's a couple things because what you describe is, is fairly typical. Um, maybe what I see more often is that somebody's created a consulting model. What they haven't done are the do it yourself or the, whether you want to call it a, a some kind of a course um, or a, a workshop, they haven't done those. It's been, uh, one-to-one consulting at, at, at a fee. And a lot of times that looks like a, a bespoke service. It's not even a, like, this is what you're going to get every time it looks different. And they've built that a lot of times around their personal expertise. So then they step back and say, okay, I'm working as much as I can. They're not billing by the hour, they're billing by the project, but it has some of the same ramifications at the end of the day. It's like, can I make enough money doing this? And how do I build this funnel to get people, or you know, in, in your words, the product ladder, how do I get them you know, at an entry level and move them through instead of getting them sort of fully formed at the end? So they tend to work backwards. So the next thing might be, oh, well, let me develop a workshop. Oh, let me develop a book. Oh, let me develop a course, you know, and and you start to look at um, your range of offerings from, you know, what's the entry point? What's the cheapest thing you offer, which should be consistent with your brand and your positioning? And then what's the most expensive thing? And the, the model that I probably see most often is consulting, speaking books, Right. Because you write a book and you've you've experienced this yourself, Jonathan, you write a book and then you do speeches and your speeches go up. Right. And you might start at five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars and then you're at fifteen hundred and three thousand and five thousand. And you may go well beyond from that point. And so you get you know, you're getting revenue from your books, low price point, typically, um, with the exception of Blair ends, it's low price point. Um, but it's driving some other aspect of your business. It's driving consulting projects or it's driving speaking. But again, even those people will come back and say, oh, maybe I should have something else. Like the guy who says, all right, I'm going to sell this, this, and I'm saying book in quotes, I'm going to sell this book for a hundred dollars versus say 20, but, um, it's going to be required for a workshop that I do. So yeah, he makes a hundred dollars on the book, but the real money is in the $1,500 workshop. So it's, they're looking at all the pieces and how they come together. Yes. And this is, this is really the genesis of the question that we posed to Blair in last week's episode uh, about what was the strategy for his new book? How was he, how was he pricing it? Or how is he picturing it in the kind of uh, environment of his business? Was he did he see it as a, a big business card, or was it actually going to be a revenue stream? And he totally understood what we meant. You know, he was like the his first book, "When Without Pitching Manifesto," was the business card. That was the thing that got him attention. It got him uh, invitations to speak. It got uh, invitations from other publishers. That was his game changer. Yeah, it was a right. It was his big, his sort of splash. And this new one is more of a how-to. It's much more detailed. It's uh, you know, and and but regardless, he knew that this new one was going to be something that he was going to be making money from. It wasn't. It wasn't to sort of make a name for himself or stake out a claim because that claim was already staked out. 
And now he's just kind of exploring it and mining it, I guess, would be the analogy, you know, to stick yeah, with the metaphor. Mining it. And he was very clear about that, which I adored. I loved. And if, if listener, if you have not listened to the last episode, absolutely go back and listen to Blair talk through his uh, his thought process of where his new book is positioned, you know, how he thought through the audience, how he thought through the the way the book was was assembled, uh, the way it was produced, how he sold it, who his audience is. Uh, it, I mean, I, I wish everyone would do that with the book and they'd have a much greater outcome on the other end. Yes, his level of clarity and the consistency is very high. So really, really good. So I, I think what we're getting at, so this is a business model episode. And I think what we're getting at here is a business model for an authority. I feel like it falls into the, the, the consulting kind of realm and less of the implementation world, less of the development world, less of the here, you know, the body shop world. It's, it's much more, uh, I want to say, I don't know, I'm struggling for the word. It's, I don't want to say intangible, but it's, it's much more strategic. Let's put it like that. Is that, is that consistent with your world or is that just me? Cause I'm from the software space. I think this is all, this is all strategic, you know? I mean, it, it, you've got to think about it and you have to think about it I think I think you have to think about it simplistically. In other words, you know, you have to basically get down to brass tacks and say, what am I offering? What are the price points? Does this make sense to the clientele that I'm trying to appeal to? Does this work or doesn't it? And it's, uh, you know, and then you experiment. That's the beauty of this. And, you know, and you don't necessarily experiment by saying, oh, I'm going to develop a 20 part course that I'm going to sell for $5,000. You know, you experiment with something small and you see how it works and how it fits into your model and do your clients, um, do they get it? Do they want it? Do they want to spend the money on that? Is it pulling people to you? How does it work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. It doesn't have to be like a giant, you know, six months of your life into this giant launch yeah, and then whoops, crickets. That's the worst feeling in the world to, to do that. I know. Yep. Yeah. Oh, well now we'll just, all we have to do now is find product market fit. It's like <laughs> the, the worst. Yeah. What am I going to do with this thing? Right. I always say to people, if, if they can't find someone to bounce the idea of the product off of, how are you going to find clients for it after you've built it? Yeah. And, you know, and part of the challenge is that we're all, I, I think probably most of the people listening to this, we're hardwired to create stuff right? Yes. We get excited about something and we want to dig into it. We want to learn everything we can. And then we want to turn that into something somebody else can learn from. I mean, it's interesting. It's, I'm sure it's why you wrote your books, Jonathan. Yeah, it's absolutely. fascinating. It's fascinating. But, you know, here's the big but is before you invest all that time in something, unless it's just for the pure love of it, if it's for a business investment, you really have to think it through strategically. You know, who's your audience? How are they going to use this? I just got a book. Oh, maybe I shouldn't say just. It was probably six weeks ago. Somebody sent me a, a book. We were talking about working together. And, and I, I started to read the book and I was really confused. I couldn't figure out who the book was for. So I asked this person, so who is this book for? And uh, the person said, well, you know, I've really been trying to figure that out. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, no. And I mean, really, and I, I mean, I kept reading and I was in maybe the fourth chapter and I still couldn't figure it out. And, th and that's what I do for a living. 
I couldn't figure out who, who the book was for, except, you know, for the person that wrote it. Yeah, that's a challenge. So we're running a little long here, so we should probably wrap up. But I wanted to, I wanted to kind of call out one thing that I think is so obvious to both of us that we haven't mentioned it, but just to call out that, that having a focus for the overall business, having some kind of focus, some sort of, I think we've talked about it in the past as like a big idea or, or just sort of a catalyst that string in the sugar water that holds everything together. It gives a, gives a place for things to accrete to, uh, Jeff Bezos talks about it like a flywheel. So it, as you create these different, whether it's books or courses or workshops or, uh, or training or speeches or whatever these things are that you're creating without a focus, they just fly off away from each other. But with a focus, it's the focus becomes almost like an axle that they rotate around and it becomes this, not, I'm not going to say self-propagating, but it, it becomes um, very easy to maintain a high degree of momentum with a little amount of additional mm -hmm. force over time. So he refers to that as a flywheel concept for obvious reasons. And it, it, without that focus, you're in trouble. You know, I, the story you just told is physically pains me, but that's a great example of, of the problem. So if you don't have that focus first, and a lot of times that focus is going to include an audience, like a particular person who I am meant to serve, somebody who I can help. I know I can, because I've been talking to them, uh, somewhere, you know, either online in person, maybe your past clients, maybe it's friends. It doesn't matter. Like there's a group of people who are interested in you helping them with this thing, whether it's a diet or building a rails application. And once you're reasonably sure that there's something worth testing, then you can do small things to test it and then create these, these products, this product ladder, this expertise. And, and I think you can do it either bottom up or top down, but, but it needs that focus to hold it together. Otherwise you're just going one inch in every direction for, for yeah, eternity. And, and I think if it's, if it feels too intimidating <clears throat> at this particular stage of, of your development, then maybe you don't call it a big idea yet, but you call it a point of view. You actually develop, you know, a series of statements about, you know, what you believe um, relative to your work so that that gives you some focus. And eventually the big idea will come out of that, but it gets you started so that you're not sitting there sort of deer in the headlights trying to figure out, all right, so what do I add be beside my freelance consulting? Oh, I love that. I never thought about that's really good. That's a nice interim step because it can be hard. Yeah. And it, I, I think it's better to keep moving forward than to just, you know, stop. You just keep moving forward and you're going to make mistakes in this. Everybody does. Everybody has. So just get used to the idea that it's not going to be a perfectly straight line because it won't. Right. Yeah. Progress is jagged, as one of my students said to me the other day. All right, great. Well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it for this week. Thanks for joining us, dear listener. We hope you join us again next week for the Business of Authority. Take care.